The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 28th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump has released his tax reform plan, or at least that's what we're told. President Trump leaving Washington to sell his party's tax reform plan in India. The president calls a, quote, middle-class miracle. Yeah, that miracle is the tax overhaul plan that the president unveiled just yesterday. It'll fall to- So in journalism, we're always told reform. That is, a, that is actually a charged word. It's subjective. Don't call a thing reform. It's a value judgment. Call it a proposal. Or at least this is stuff we used to be able to think about back before Captain Crazy Pants rained down upon us. Anyway, parsing, is it a reform? Is it mostly a cut? Is it a cut masquerading as reform? Is it actually really a significant overhaul, but not in a good way? That's all the things that we should be doing. But my problem isn't even that. It's that this isn't a reform or not a reform. It's just not a plan. It's not a good plan or a bad plan. How is this a plan? We used to have seven tax brackets. Now they're saying we'll have three. That's good. Three. That is an empirical number. That is meaningful. But they do not tell us where the brackets begin. You might as well not have brackets. How can anyone possibly evaluate the effects of specific percentages, which they released, if no one can answer percentages of what? The top rate, will it kick in at $75,000 or $7.5 million? Kind of significant. It's like if I announced I'm going on a diet and now we're going to eat 50% fruit and vegetables, 25% grains, and 25% proteins. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Now, how many total calories are you going to ingest? I don't know. Could be 2,000. Could be 12,000. I could wind up as Kate Moss, Michael Phelps, or Walter Hudson, who's one of those big guys they had to chainsaw out of his own apartment. So this plan started out a few months ago as bullet points, and it became now, maybe let's call it a framework, So listen, at this rate, by the time it's voted down in Congress, it will be a bold outline. President Trump prefers, it is said, to leave the details to Congress. That has worked out great for him so far. He just refuses or is unable to engage in any details on health care, on wall funding, and now on taxes. He just sidesteps the issue. You know, it is hard to believe that Donald Trump and tax avoidance would ever go together. Not the Trump I know. Obviously, this guy thinks that vague mottos, red hats, and tweeting from a place of anger are good enough to convince a minority of all Americans, so why wouldn't that work on actual detail-oriented professionals, members of Congress, who have a lot riding on this, and who also mostly aren't idiots? Mostly, I said. On the show today, we bring you a solution to all of the political extremism out there today. It comes in the form of two white men whose average age is 68. Wait, wait! Hear them out. They're very experienced. Their ideas are solid. It's a coming together of the right and left. If only we could get a cool young millennial to brand it on social media. The Just Live, Pesca on the Potomac. That is me. It is also a river. You've got to figure out which is which. That'll be 7 p.m. Tuesday, November 28th. November 28th in D.C., the Hamilton Theater. For tickets and more information, visit slate.com slash live. I'll be joined by Benjamin Wittes, Alexandra Petri, Chris Malamphy, and actress Holly Twyford. Again, slate.com slash live. I'll be coming to D.C.
America, 2017, the norms have exploded. The ideologies are skewed. And the bills, do any bills even have a chance? I could name two that just might. William Crystal, William Galston, the two bills who have come together for a project where right meets left, a chance to reinvent and literally recenter America. Look, it's kind of a combination between a Hail Mary, which is a desperate measure, but also, you know, a two-yard dump off because we are talking about very moderate centrists who are reasonable people, at least in this context. Galston and Crystal, as I will call you, welcome. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, good good to be there. So tell me about the genesis of this project. Bill and I have known each other for 40 years. And this is Bill Galston talking. Right, since graduate school. Bill, Crystal, and I have known each other for 40 40 years. Uh, We lost touch a little bit during the Reagan administration. But after the 1992 election, a professor at Harvard got the bright idea of inviting us up to debate the meaning of it all. Uh, and apparently it was a big big success, at least by Harvard's modest standards. And so we've been debating elections ever since for nearly a quarter of a century. But uh, in our most recent debate, uh, November of 2016, we looked at each other and said, you know, we seem to be in roughly the same place. <laughs> Things have changed. Uh, and perhaps we ought to try to get together and see if we can do something. And we we did an op-ed together, which was a piece of cake. And that emboldened us to hope that maybe we could drill a little deeper and find an area of substantive agreement between the center-left and the center-right that might be the basis for a new conversation. So that's the way I'd tell the story. But Bill may have a different take on it. No, Bill Crystal area. No, that's that's accurate. Uh, Bill Galston's always always accurate and um, and and even truthful, uh, which is impressive in the age of Trump. You know, I'd say what what we learned doing this little project in six seven policy areas. Some of these areas are not that ideological. When you talk to people from think tanks on the center left, center right, but even the more libertarian right and the more populist or egalitarian left or progressive left, you actually get agreement on some things, some areas, what's working, what's not working, or at least the problems. And for me, this was kind of a test. I mean, could you actually come up with something that was reasonable? And it got pretty well received from people in both, some people at least in both parties. And I think for me so far, the answer is yes. I don't want to overstate it. This is a modest document and there are obviously huge areas of disagreement. But I I actually think it gave me the sense that if people, if politicians would take some of these ideas and run with them, if, if Bill and I and others could continue to work on some policy areas, there's a little more hope for sensible policymaking that would address some of the legitimate problems that people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, you know, saw out there in 2015, 2016. A little more hopeful than I was at the beginning of this process. Do you think that the moment we're in is a place where conservatism has to change or has, you know, does Donald Trump just skew what it means to be conservative so you're moving to the center? Well, the second is certainly true. Trumpism, in my view, is not a healthy conservatism. So that I'm happy to denounce as as an old-fashioned conservative or as a new centrist. For me personally, I'd say over the last eight months, I've moved somewhat from the notion of what we need to do is revive a perfectly reasonable, sensible, healthy conservatism. It had its limitations like everything does. But I guess I'm less confident that A, it's that easy to revive once Trump has sort of taken it over in certain respects. B, that I do think it was somewhat out of touch with some current problems. And so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in between, I suppose, uh, of trying to save conservatism from Trump and trying to revitalize a new center. I'd like to do both. I think the two could come together in helpful ways. A healthy country would have a, you know, a healthy liberalism, a healthy conservatism at a healthy center with overlaps of, of all three. So as I look at the ideas, the very ideas, the seven of them, I'm going to list them now. Challenging big tech, 
which I, I guess can mean a lot of things, but it's talking about reining in uh, the powers of companies like Amazon and Facebook, protecting innovation, which is about counterfeit goods and pirated software. Work matters. Sure, who would disagree with that? But it's talking about uh, labor force participation, inclusive growth, tax and infrastructure, things like infrastructure good and the corporate tax rate too high, new and small business and immigration. On immigration, Bill Crystal, you have been uh, a Republican who's always wanted immigration reform. My question is, are these the seven most important issues or just the seven you could agree on? As we entered this project, we saw immediately that we couldn't do the full range of important issues. We couldn't address them on our first pass. And so we decided to focus on issues that were intimately related to the future of the American economy. And there's lots more to say about foreign policy. There's more to say about social policy. There's more to say about government reform. But we think that these seven ideas taken together represent a solid start towards the revitalization of thinking about the future of the American economy. And Mike, if I could just add, Bill Crystal here, I mean, look, if others see this and say, hey, well, if, if these ideas make sort of sense, why don't we get together, we former Republican senator and former Democratic you know, House member, I'm making this up, and, and I'd do a project on fixing Congress, that's great if other people do that. So I hope it's a bit of a spur to others to not quite be as uh, passive or as uh, fatalistic about reform efforts. I mean, there's a lot of reason to be fatalistic given the last few years about reform efforts on the left, right, and center. Maybe Trump in this respect, though, uh, you know, gives us a sense of the urgency of making the case for some of these things. But th- but this happens all the time. I mean, Bob Corker will be working with Democrats to try something on ACA. All the time, Republican and Democrats co-sponsor the ideas they agree on. Seth Moulton, a veteran. Mike Kaufman, uh, Kaufman, a veteran. Co-sponsor the Veteran Over Medication Prevention Act, right? An area of agreement. We saw Newt and Hillary coming together talking about the digitization of medical records, right? Appeals to both of their kind of wonky sides. Uh, Just because there are a couple areas of disagreement, I don't know that that's the prescription for what ills America. Well, I, Bill Crystal here, I'll let Bill Galston talk about that too. Yeah, well, there is no one prescription and obviously a lot would depend on how widely this spreads. I think if it's token little things, it's probably better than nothing. They might have done some good by digitizing medical medical records, but um, that's less than... we, We took sort of bigger chunks, I would say, of public policy. Uh, We're not saying this is brand new or no one's ever thought of bipartisan agreement before, but it is an attempt to think through the issues. It's not an attempt to simply say, let's split the difference or let's find something that's so vanilla that we can all agree on it. It's an attempt to say these are kind of thorny issues. But, you know, if you look at the research and if you look at what people kind of think should be done, serious people, uh, there is more opportunity to to move ahead than, than one might think. Yeah, let me just echo that. This is Bill Galston. In this document, we didn't go for the capillaries. We went for the jugular and we took on some really big issues. We took on the core of the United States economic relationship with the People's Republic of China. We took on one of the largest economic trends of the past generation, namely the movement towards increased corporate concentration. We picked out the tech sector as an example, but we could have looked almost anywhere uh, for similar similar examples. We didn't beat around the periphery of the immigration issue. We put on the table a plan to solve the issue. We went for the heart of the matter and we tried to come up with answers commensurate in scope and in scale with the problems that we saw. My point is that I think that there are probably 
28 senators from each party, or maybe 30, who would agree with the vast majority of what you're laying out here. But we still don't get progress. There are other factors. Yeah, we can identify things that the people generally, smart people of goodwill in the middle agree on. I think the shame of where we are right now is that's not nearly good enough. And I wonder if you have anything to break the factors uh, that are clogging us up, which aren't, to my mind, that there's just no areas of disagreement. I think there are plenty of areas of disagreement, and that's what makes it all the more heartbreaking that we can't get anything done. I'd say two things. I mean, there's a political reform agenda that's been out there for a while, congressional reform and party reform, or some electoral reform things. Uh, Bill's contributed to some of that work at, at No Labels and, and other organizations. I'm, you know, I'm quite sympathetic to a lot of that. And you're right. Obviously, you can't just put the ideas out there. You have to have mechanisms for getting them passed. I think you've seen some beginnings, though, in the Hill of rebellion against the notion that, especially among younger senators and congressmen, that they're sent to Congress simply to rubber stamp leadership or to ineffectually rebel occasionally against leadership. And I've talked to a fair number of younger members, some Democrats and mostly Republicans, uh, who I think 2018 might be a little different from the preceding years. You never know, you used the analogy before of Hail Mary, or maybe these are a bunch of you know, three-yard uh, sort of passes playing it fairly safe. It would be very good for this to happen once or twice, because they would then get in the habit of doing this. So I do, and I think there Trump could paradoxically help. I mean, the sense that we cannot really, it's very unhealthy to have a politics where it's everything is demagogued and, and you know, everything becomes all or nothing. He, he, he makes the hyperpart the routine hyperpartisanship much worse because of his demagoguery and irresponsibility. And I do think a lot of people are bristling. We haven't yet seen the break. I agree with you. I mean, if you look at the moment right now, you got to say, uh, not that much evidence yet of, of any kind of uh, breakouts. But there's never evidence until it happens, right? So you have to just have to start somewhere. Yeah, let me let me echo that based on my own experience working with another organization, No Labels, for eight years now. Uh, when we started, we were subject to nothing but derision from the political class. But in the past few years, we've managed to put together a bipartisan caucus in the House of Representatives, 22 Democrats, 22 Republicans – who are now a formal independent caucus in the House. They've agreed to rules that will allow them to vote as a unit. And to everybody's astonishment, including their own, they actually stepped forward into the, bere into the breach after the collapse of the second effort to repeal and replace Obamacare and put a health reform proposal on the table that became the template for the bipartisan efforts now going on in the Senate Health Committee led by Senator Lamar Alexander and, and Patty Murray. I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump was elected in part with the hope that he'd be able to break down or break through the hyperpartisanship simply because he had at various points in his political life been a Democrat, a Republican, an independent and God knows what he is now. And so I think he was elected – to weave back and forth between the two political parties as he started to do just in the past few weeks. He was not elected simply to be the, the leader of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. I think that your agenda items are 
to some extent, first of all, I compliment them. And I think that if we say that when Trump says something crazy, he gives a permission structure to talk about it. But let's apply that to this. This at least gives some sort of uh, permission structure and and injects it into the conversation. And so maybe this will be an idea that people glom onto. So I give it high praise for that. But I really think that it's a policy solution to what is a structural problem. And until the structural problems, fundamental things like the ideological purity of the parties, which, I, you know, back when I was a kid and when you guys were working in politics, a Democrat didn't only mean liberal and conservative didn't only mean Republican. And if you'd ask me, I would say, oh, it's good that they're sorted. But now the analogy I use is it's like a breed of dog. It turns out mutts are healthier than purebreds. So I think that's such a problem that we actually can't solve. It's just the way things have sorted out. I wonder if we're going to get anywhere. OK, I'm done with my speeches. I think there are a couple other things. Do you think that we could really break a logjam if Republicans don't press the advantage that they won in state races and redistrict. I think that's a big reason why politics have become more extreme. You can't gerrymander a Senate district, quote unquote. But since you can gerrymander in the House, I think that has a big effect. So that's one thing. Two, something like the Hastert rule. Can we really get ahead if only the majority of the majority ever brings legislation to Congress. And then three, the threat of getting primaried, which is not nearly as big in the, in the Democratic Party as it is in the Republican Party and pulls, you know, would be moderate or, cons- or centrist Republicans to the right. So those are three tangible things to talk about. I like your formulation about, you know, these are attempts to have policy solutions to structural problems. I don't think Bill or I would disagree at all that there are structural problems. But the way you break up the structures is partly through policy initiatives, which then lead to restructuring. I think the structural problems partly came as a matter of policy fights and policy developments. Registering, I think, is overstated as a problem. I don't deny that it is somewhat of a problem, but the political scientists have done a lot of work on this. And there are states that don't have partisan districting, and their delegations are pretty polarized, too. And the Senate obviously hasn't changed its boundary lines in, you know, 50 years, and it's pretty polarized, too. So I think that's probably a little less of a problem than people think. But the habit of working together on some policy areas would affect structural things. So there's nothing – there's no reason committees can't be stronger right now. It's that they're sort of weirdly – they're used to deferring to leadership, and the members who go there are indebted to leadership. But if a couple of committee – the committee chairman and ranking member do something important in some area and it passes and they get a lot of praise in the media and stuff, well, then the structural relationship between the committee chairman and the leadership will change somewhat. Let me, let me just add to that, Mike. This is Bill Galston. It isn't often that both political parties are in intellectual crisis simultaneously. It's usually one party that is strong and self-confident and the other one through defeat has been plunged into crisis. But the Republican Party, in a way, was plunged into crisis by the terms of its victory last November. And so I think there are real opportunities to break the intellectual, ideological and policy logjams in both political parties and reconfigure the fault lines of American politics, which have really been like World War I fixed battle positions ever since the Reagan revolution inside the Republican Party. I think, I think we've reached a kind of hinge moment where there are new opportunities for ideological and partisan and intellectual reinvention in both political parties and we're trying to point that out and point towards one way of seizing the opportunity. On the other hand, you really in, – in politics where there are no certainties – you really do have to bet on hope because if you negotiate with yourself into despair and inaction, then you know what the outcome is going to be. 
if you do something that seems right, even if you can't calculate the odds of success, at least you give yourselves a chance. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, I like the idea of betting on hope. And uh, I guess if, if the formulation that a second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience, the Bill Galston, Bill Crystal marriage is something like that, too. Uh, this is our ma- first marriage, <laughs> not our second. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's, it's, it's a new marriage uh, between you two. Uh, it is the New Center Project, and the No Labels Foundation is sponsoring it, and they're trying to revitalize the center. Thank you, gentlemen, both. Thanks, Mike. Good talking to you. Bye-bye now. And now the spiel. If Ivanka Trump gave your thrift shop some hand-me-down dresses, would you take them? If Eric and Don Jr. donated to your Museum of Natural History some carcasses of African animals, assuming your museum was in the animal carcass business, would you accept them? If Melania Trump shipped your library 10 Dr. Seuss books in her capacity as first lady, would you say thanks? One of those ethical conundrums is not a hypothetical. Can you guess which one? Hear now the answer. Oh, the places 10 Dr. Seuss books from First Lady Melania Trump aren't going. The places they aren't going, I get it. The people they won't meet on Mulberry Street hop off pop green eggs like revenge, a dish best served cold. Okay, I could do this all day. But the story is that a librarian in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so probably not a person who has the word deplorable in her Twitter handle, rejected the donation of 10 books, retail value about $79, with an open letter. An open letter. Oh, geez, this is going to get preachy. Here we go. The first lady should have picked another school that actually needed the books, writing in part, my students have access to a school library with over 9,000 volumes and a librarian with a graduate degree in library science. Look, if taken literally, we could argue, just accept the books and you donate them to the needier district down the road. But of course, this was an open letter. So it was an opportunity to issue a smackdown of an unpopular president and his first lady and hope that Melania, if not Horton, hears an F you. The librarian writes, why not go out of your way to gift books to underfunded and underprivileged communities that continue to be marginalized and maligned by policies put in place by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos? Okay, fair. So you're saying you don't want the 10 books? Got it. Okay. I'm just going to take the books. I'm going to, oh, no, you don't. You just told a librarian to shush. The librarians are the ones who do the shushing. And Sueros went on. My school doesn't have a need for these books. And then there's the matter of the books themselves. You may not be aware of this, but Dr. Seuss is a bit of a cliche, a tired and worn ambassador for children's literature. Whoa, apparently the Cambridge public schools have a thesaurus among their 9,000 books. Tired, cliche, worn, to say nothing of threadbare, trite, and hackneyed. The librarian, Sueros, goes on to list more reasons why she turned down these Dr. Seuss books. I will summarize the case thus far. She would not, could not because of socioeconomics. She would not, could not because your husband makes her vomit. She would not, could not find a place. She will not, cannot because of race. Yes, the librarian writes, another fact that people are unaware of is that Dr. Seuss illustrations are steeped in racist propaganda, caricatures, and harmful stereotypes. She goes on, scholar Philip Nell's new book, 
was the cat in the hat black, the hidden racism of children's literature and the need for diverse books, further explores and shines a spotlight on the systemic racism and oppression in education and literature. By the way, spoiler alert to Philip Nell's new book, Was the Cat in the Hat Black? Yeah, he was. He was apparently based on minstrel show stereotypes. Here is Nell giving a talk to Google. And what makes the cat so interesting and so representative and why he's the title of the book is that during the very same decade that The Cat in the Hat was published, Seuss was both speaking out against racism and recycling racist caricature in his books. This was all new to me, as I'm sure it was to Michelle Obama. Here she is in 2015. You excited to hear this new wonderful book by Dr. Seuss? Yeah, I'm excited too. You know who saw this book this morning before he got on a helicopter? The president. He lo- we love Dr. Seuss in our house. I will tell you, I do not quite buy Philip Nell's conclusion, but it did give me a little to think about. He is, by the way, the author of one of the best biographies of Dr. Seuss that was written a decade ago. But since then, he has come out much, much more forcefully on the side that Seuss was racist. He also wasn't racist, but let's not forget, he definitely also was racist. And that's largely because his images played on caricatures, which were rooted in racism. Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse, too, by the way, he says. And not calling out racism, Philip Nell says, is a perpetuation of racism. Though Philip Nell himself shared an anecdote before the Google crowd, which I think is kind of self-indicting. Uh, when I wrote the official biography for the uh, Seussville website, I was asked to cut any mention of the stereotypes in the cartoons, even though my narrative tried to frame this in a positive way, noting that in his later work, Seuss actively opposed stereotypes, which he did and also didn't. Um, since I wanted to be paid for the job, I cut that, although I have included that story in this book and right now in this talk. And now the information is known to us. To summarize, Cat Black, books get the hook, Seuss not fully woke by 2017 standards, also not a real doctor. And to think that I learned it from, well, WBZ Channel 4 Boston. I do have to work on my rhyme scheme. That's the end of my show. Now I give my list of all the producers who work on the gist. There's Schrader and Wilson. There's Liktai, comma Steve. If I don't call him executive producer of Slate, he might leave. And this I say to each one of you, till I'm red in the face and my forehead is glistening. Um peru de peru du peru. Thanks for listening.